Dr. Phillips with us for our Missions Festival. Uh, and since he is uh, so heavily involved in uh, denominational affairs and so knowledgeable, we wanted to have some uh, time for him to share uh, just some of the, the facts and some of the things that have been going on. Uh, we are thankful for his ministry with the Gospel Reformation Network. If you've never uh, visited that uh, website, uh, I encourage you to do so and learn a little bit more about it. Uh, but I'm going to turn it over now to Dr. Phillips, and hopefully we'll have a chance for some Q&A uh, toward the end. We're trying to stop by 545 so that uh, we can get everything ready for evening worship. Uh, so we'll uh, look forward. Let me open us in prayer, and then we'll begin. Father God, thank you so much uh, for giving us this time to uh, reflect upon our denomination, Lord. We thank you so much for the PCA. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your providence uh, in uh, founding her uh, and we pray that you would continue to sustain her, continue, Lord, to guide and lead and watch over her. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and give us uh, grace from your Holy Spirit, uh, Lord, to stand firm on the truth that you have revealed in your scriptures, uh, Lord, to remain uh, faithful to our confessional standards, uh, Lord, and to be always a denomination uh, that is committed and loyal to the great commission of Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you give us grace now as we hear from Dr. Phillips? Uh, bless him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. Thank you for having me again. I was glad to be asked to do this, and I will try to be very careful, but also thoughtful. I, I have a tendency to... I, I was raised in an environment where candor was a virtue, and the PCA is not always an environment where candor is considered a virtue. But I will seek to be candid as I speak about our denominations. Caleb just prayed, so I'll just trust the Lord's blessing from that. Um, let me say that we are in a denomination that uh, is, in fact, very divided. And the average person, in the, you're not, you join a local congregation, and your congregation's in the PCA, and you need to be aware, particularly if you're an elder, I would encourage church members who are not officers also to be aware. Um, but often, when I, was, I was converted at 10th Presbyterian Church in 1990, and 10th was an incredible experience for me. And it was a conservative, ordinary means of grace church, traditional worship, and it was full of life and spiritual power. And as soon as I left 10th and went out into the broader PCA, I started hearing things about churches like 10th and how dead they were and how regressive and how it's, it's a church full of a small number of old people in seersucker suits. They don't wear seersucker suits in Philadelphia. And, and, and I started realizing, wow, um, I thought that my local church was a, an expression of what the denomination is, and I discovered that that is not necessarily true. You may discover the same thing. Uh, and there's always, in a larger denomination, there's always going to be uh, strands of differences, and I, I think that that is not to be feared or to be shocked at. You kind of have to get used to it. Um, but I do think that the PCA in 2022, it, it's a far more... Uh, aggressive division situation than that. And I'll start with 2018. Uh, in the years, really in the 25 years up to that time, there had been a pattern of, uh, of, uh, of two different sides. I think most people would say there's primarily two different sides in the PCA that didn't always have the same vision. Uh, whatever label you're going to put on it, Brian Chappell did a paper, so did Tim Keller, 
some years ago, uh, in which one side's labeled the progressive side, the other the confessionalist side. Uh, there are people object to those views, to those labels. I, I've had many people who I would consider the part of the progressive wing of the PCA say, stop calling us progressive. And I, I go, well, then give us another label other than you know, beautiful orthodox, which I think is very self-aggrandizing. Give, give us a label, because we're not trying to be offensive, we're just trying to you know, use the accepted taxonomy. And it was not conservatives who gave us those labels. And so I think that they are, I think they actually are uh, more or less accurate uh, descriptions. We have a, a side that believes in uh, uh, old school Presbyterianism, believes in a strong confessional stance, and you have another that believes in a more broad confessional stance, and they are the progressive side. Now, I think that while there's a lot of uh, contest between the sides, pretty much every General, General Assembly involved a maneuver by one side vis-a-vis -vis the other. Uh, I actually wrote an article around 2017 saying that I believe the PCA, I'm, more op I'm very optimistic about the PCA and our potential for unity. In fact, some of my more conservative confessional friends uh, questioned my judgment in saying that, but I, I thought that we were actually coming rather close to a functional unity. Uh, you cannot have denominational unity without making a compromise. The question is, what's the difference between a good compromise and a bad compromise? A bad compromise is one that, 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 that sacrifices the authority of Scripture that sacrifices vital biblical and theological principles. A good compromise is one that accepts as there's variety of practice and in some understanding of those principles. And I was relatively optimistic in 2017 that we would be able to, to settle for good compromises that are inevitable and that we would be settling for peace. Well, an event happened in 2018 that rocked that whole situation and that really shapes the dynamic of our present, and that was the Revoice Conference of 2018. The Revoice Conference held at Memorial Presbyterian Church in a PCA in St. Louis, Missouri, which happens to be this, this town where our uh, denominational seminary is, um, hosted a conference with, with respect to uh, gay Christianity. And uh, many of us were deeply shocked, I'm still deeply shocked, at the themes. Now, I want to say up front that we share many of the aspirations of that conference, namely a, a, a sympathy for sinners of all kinds, a, and particularly of a community that has a very difficult experience. We, we care about, uh, about the experience of people who self-identify as, as same-sex attraction or as gay. We want them to be reached for the gospel. Many of the aims we would be very sympathetic to. But there, was, there were claims in the literature that as soon as it came up were remarkably alarming to at least the people on the confessionalist side. And let me give you some of them. That uh, one, was, one of the addresses spoke of clear, queer, glory, queer glory, honor, and treasure in heaven. Well, I personally object to that statement. Uh, one, of the things that, one of the issues uh, under debate is whether homosexual desire is a result of creation or the fall. And there have been voices in that camp who argue that it's got my God-given gay identity, that it's part of the variety of creation. Well, it can be shown very biblically 
that creation is between male and female, marriage is between a man and a woman, and a, a non-heterosexual scenario cannot result from create God's creation design, does not, but it is a result of the fall. Lots of things are, are a result of the fall. That it's a, it's a part of man's sinfulness. Well, that being the case, redemption does not bring as treasure, glory, and honor into heaven those things that are a result of sin. And so what, what we saw happening, I think we still see happening, is a moving of the pieces on the board in terms of our theological categories. Uh, and that was one of the expressions. Uh, the use of the term sexual minorities. It is our belief, it is the belief of the word of God, it's the belief of our confessional standards that uh, homosexuality in its various varieties is in a category of sin. That the issue is one of, of sin. Now, but let me just say right now, I myself am a sinner, and you are a sinner. It shouldn't be shocking to a Christian to take a manner that is biblically described as sin and say it's a matter of sin rather than of sociological victimhood. And much has been said of the sins of the church against the homosexual community. Well, again, I'm always happy to confess sins, to acknowledge corporate sins. Uh, in many cases, this, this uh, revoice movement will be talking about what they regard as the abuse of the ex-gay movement, and I'm sure there were abuses of the ex-gay movement. I think the classic example is the use of electroshock therapy to turn somebody straight. I'm not an expert in it, but I personally would think that we should stay shy of that. And we were during one of our debates at General Assembly, this happens all the time. One of the proponents came to me and said, so you just want to electric shock people. And I'm like, you know, there actually are alternatives. The fact that you're not for normalizing uh, homosexual desire does not mean de facto that you want to hook people up to electric chairs. Uh, and, but the rhetoric goes that way. Um, and, and so the sexual minorities though, is putting it in a political class where it's victimhood, and I don't think that that is a faithful representation of how the Bible views, in this case, homosexual des uh, uh, desires. Uh, it, there was another address that spoke of the gay community in the church as being sent there by God to give a prophetic witness to the idolatry of the nuclear family. And I went, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, boy, there's a lot in there. Uh, I suppose a nuclear family can be made an idol. I probably maybe know some examples where I think that might be the case. But the nuclear family de facto is not an idol. Uh, the desire to and the, prom the promotion of the church towards getting married and becoming parents is not idolatry. It's, it's, it's a biblical view of life. It's the positive view of life that the Bible gives us. And of course, this is going, you're noticing, you know, a lot of this rhetoric, a lot of this reorganizing of the board reflects the view of the progressive political and sexual movement of the culture. And of course, that's the very thing we see happening. One of the macro issues happening, frankly, in every generation is that the winds of the culture begin blowing on the sails of the church. And our desire is to stiffen the sails or to rightly adjust them rather than to change the course of the ship. 
Um, and uh, that was rather alarming. I do not believe that God designed people to have what the Bible considers a sinful desire, and you might give me a different sin category, and I would say the same thing, um, uh, as a prophetic witness. And so what you're seeing is the, the response to the tension that people who are homosexual, gay, same-sex attracted, who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there really are, as Dave Garner recently written, wrote, there really are two main responses. One is to repent of what the Bible calls sin. That is the one we think is the correct one. The other one is redefinition. And so the Revoice movement represents a redefinition of, in fact, quite a lot of biblical categories, quite a lot, as I will be discussing. Um, and this was alarming. Now, I will say that uh, this informed people like me who, despite what is said about us, and what is said is that we are argumentative people with Luther Conference complexes who believe that spiritual health is found by arguing. I don't think that people actually deal with me on a regular basis would draw that conclusion, but these are the things being said against us. In fact, we had been working for years towards a workable peace and unity in the PCA, and of course, Revoice dropped like a bomb in the middle of that. Now, we have been repeatedly told that by objecting to Revoice, we're being divisive. It is in our view that those who brought Revoice upon us are the ones who have brought division to the PCA, and I think, in retrospect, intentionally so. Uh, out of this agenda. Well, for back in 2018, 2019, people began saying the PCA has gone liberal. And of course, one reason for that is a denomination long known for the, the rigor of its biblical teaching, its, its commitment to the glories of Reformed theology and sovereign grace, now started becoming known in the evangelical press for things like Revoice. And um, that's why concerns came about, I think understandably, about the continued commitment of our denomination as a denomination to biblical fidelity in doctrine and practice. But I would say at the time, look, it's one church, it's a small group of people, the PCA is a pretty big denomination, and so let's see what happens. And you would hope that the church would discipline these actions, and your, your hope for that, my hope for that, has been so far fruitless. Cases were brought up within Missouri Presbytery and they were exonerated by the Presbytery, often making arguments that in the view, my view and others were problematical and have resulted in other charges being formed. But the, the bottom line is that, that uh, Memorial Presbyterian Church was not disciplined Teaching Elder Greg Johnson was not disciplined. So a couple of years later, here's what happens when you don't di discipline. The same church played host to the Transluminate Conference, which was a transgender arts festival. And so what, what happened, here's the problem we're dealing with in the PCA. When things happen and you do not discipline them, you are at some point giving approval to them and you are opening the door to more of these things. Memorial Presbyterian's Church Association on their property with the Transluminate Conference. Now, I believe that I have real sympathy for people who are caught up in transgenderism, but I believe this is a very harmful thing to people based upon cultural lies that are a direct assault against the Christian witness and, and way of life. And I don't believe that our churches should be 
of playing host to them, but this is what you get when you don't discipline. Well, we are now 2022, and that was 2018. Um, in the next General Assembly, whatever year that was, uh, I suppose it was 2019, one response was to bring forward a document called the Nashville Statement and to call upon the PCA to affirm it and recommend it as sound teaching. Now, what are we trying to, by the way, the, the presbytery that made that overture was my presbytery. The session that overtured the presbytery was my session. So I confess to being involved in what was then overture four from the beginning, recommending the, uh, the, not the endorsement in an official way, but the approval of the teaching of the natural statement. What were we trying to do? Well, in this divisive environment where in our view, error is entering in and needs a response, we were trying to get the PCA to respond by affirming truth claims. Now the debate, were you there Caleb? Uh, on that General Assembly was a remarkable one. Uh, it was very heated and it was very contentious. And uh, the, one of the particular articles of the Nashville Statement that was, that was under view is Article 7. And it says this, that we deny that adopting a homosexual or transgender self-conception is consistent with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. I think that's a very good statement. That a Christian ought not positively identify himself or herself with any sin category as that kind of Christian, in this case, a gay Christian. Uh, you should not call yourself a racist Christian. You should not call yourself uh, anything Christian that has a sin category biblically to which Christian is added. Now, teaching elder Johnson was there, and he publicly stated, I could never accept this overture. And so the, one of the questions is, may a person who is to be accepted as a follower of Jesus Christ adopt a positive self-conception that is based on a matter that the scripture calls sinful? Now, our belief is the answer is no that we may not do so. You think of Romans 6.11, that we are to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so we are not, therefore, to be alive to a self-conception that is sinful. Now, we're not denying, by the way, that a faithful Christian may struggle with, in this case, same-sex attraction. Uh, our problem is with those who are not struggling with it or against it. Uh, in this life, you and I will always be struggling with sins, but we are, if we are positively identifying with it, well, that does not mean that we are renouncing it, that we're mortifying it, and that, and that we are dead to sin and instead alive to Christ. Now, part of the argument has been, well, all we're saying is that I struggle with it. That is not all they're saying, and that's become crystal clear, as I knew it would in the last couple of years. No one is objecting to someone say, I'm a person who struggles with this sin, that's not the same as saying I am, uh, in this case, a gay, uh, a Christian. And we object to what seems in our view to be a very clear uh, uh, refusal to accept biblical teaching on the matter of gay identity. That, that issue remains effectively unresolved, although the, the PCA did pass the Nashville statement uh, by about, a, I'm thinking a 60-40 vote, of what was an, I think that was a watershed 
to see so many PCA ministers arguing against a doctrine on an issue of truth and morality that was in the, the conservative evangelical movement, I think of our friends in the Southern Baptist Convention, for instance, who all affirmed that, and suddenly the PCA did not want to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Suddenly we had a lot of people, and there was, there was a protest against it, um, that we're, not, we're, we're reluctant to say what we've always believed the Bible taught, we still believe, and we're going to stick with it. Um, now, some of the issues that have arisen uh, as this debate has gone forward are these. Is same-sex attraction a sin? And what we're describing here is called side B homosexuality. It's just a term that's used, and the idea is of, a, you know how a, the old records, you have a side A, you have a side B, it's the same record, but it's a different side of it. Uh, side A homosexuality are self-affirming homosexuals who are practicing it. They're engaging in homosexual act, sexual behavior. They may be marrying a person of the same sex. That's side A homosexuality. And there are people who would claim to be Christians, faithful Christians, who are side A homosexuals. They are practicing homosexuals. Then you have side B homosexuals. This is the, the PCA scenario. I, I want to say the side A argument is not being made in the PCA. It's a side B argument that says, I may have a gay self-conception and identity, I may positively identify that way, but I don't practice it. Now, let me say right now that I think we should give some credit to this. Um, the side B homosexual view will be viewed by our culture at, at large as homophobia. And uh, there's no question if the liberal news media, as they approach uh, someone who says it is a sin to, um, uh, to practice homosexual desire. It is sinful and wrong for two people of the same sex to get married. Uh, they, might get, they might get banned from Twitter for saying something like that. And, and this, is the, this is the other side in the PC. So I really do want to give credit for that. But the question remains on its own merits. Is gay Christianity uh, itself a faithful expression of union with Christ and Christian discipleship. Well, here's some of the arguments. Is same-sex attraction itself sinful? So that do I need to repent not merely of the behaviors, but of the desires to do so? And this is not a new matter in the history of Reformed theology. And I think you, you may be thinking all through Scripture, it is not merely the behavior, but the desire to do the behavior that the Bible considers sinful. And so we will argue that if someone has a desire to, for homosexual sex, and it, that that desire itself is to be uh, uh, repented of and to be mortified, mortified is our term, for we are to be attacking the roots of it. We are seeking to put it to death. Paul in Colossians uses that language, put to death whatever is inside of you. And then he talks not about behaviors, but about wrong affections, wrong desires, and they are to be put to death. Now, the argument then is made about same-sex attraction. Well, it's not even the, the, the active lust, it's the orientation. 
And you and I will, will see people who will come to you, and we have great sympathy for them, and they will say, as long as I can remember, I'm a boy and I've been attracted to other boys. And of course, we're not in a position to evaluate that claim. Uh, I, I, am, I have no interest or ability to say, no, you didn't. I mean, how do I know whether a certain person experienced that at a young age or not? And so they're saying, you're telling me I have to repent of my underlying orientation, and the biblical answer is, well, of course. We're to be repenting of it, as a larger catechism shows. Part of mortification is the pursuit of the opposite. Paul says, let him who steals no longer steal, but make a living so as to give to those in need. The biblical approach to all inward sin attitudes is to, is to by the ordinary, not by electroshock therapy, by the way, I, I have no inclination to argue for that, by the ordinary means of grace, by prayer, and by the word of God, at the Lord's table, we are to be seeking grace that whatever sin is in us, whatever sin orientation and desire there is within us, that it would die and it would be positively replaced by that which is wholesome in God's design and according to the word of God. Um, one of the theological terms that came to view is concupiscence. Everybody say concupiscence with me. Let's get it off your tongue. Concupiscence. Concupiscence is a theological term arising from the late early, ch early church to describe sin desires at a pre-volitional level. It's, and the argument has been made, Greg Johnson has made it, many others have made it, that if I didn't choose to be same-sex attracted, then there's no sin in me being same-sex attracted. Now some are going to say, God created me this way, well now, now something that the Bible calls sin is part of God's creation design. We're violating the Bible by saying that. But the concupiscence argument is, if it's pre-volitional, if I never chose to be this way, then there's nothing, because sin only takes place when I will it. Now the Reformed faith has dealt with this long before the Roman Catholic doctrine agrees with the revoice position on this that a sin orientation that is pre-volitional is not sinful. The Protestant reformers, our entire confessional heritage, uh, rejects that. The Bible knows of no such, the Bible, the main term is epithumia, inward desires. The Bible does not create different levels of inner sin desire at some barrier of which there's no sin. The Bible has no approach for that. And so as our recent study committee really handled it very excellently, uh, concupiscence is sin. Everything that is contrary to the will of God is sin. And if I have a condition that I didn't choose, then that may still be sinful, and it's my duty as a Christian to repent of, repent of it. Now, one thing we're seeing is original sin is no small matter. That the fall of Adam had all kinds of problems and we, are, we do not escape those problems. I am not right apart from the redemptive work of Christ. At a pre-volitional level, I need to repent of things of mine. Now, I, I use the example of racism not because I'm trying to be super provocative. I just think it's helpful. You take some young man who, and everybody's going to agree today that racism is sin. I think we will. I hope we do. I, I, the violation of the sixth commandment particularly as Jesus exegetes it in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, 
Let's say someone is raised in a situation where they never chose to be racist. It's just the very air they breathe from the time they're little children. This happens all the time. Certainly happened in previous generations. From the first conversations they heard were racist. They never made a decision to be a racist. They have been racist as long as they can remember, not because of biology, but because of environment. I don't think any of us would say, well, then it's okay. All of us would say, well, it's still contrary to God's truth, and it's not loving. It's not honoring to God. You are to repent, in this case, of the way you were raised and the environment in which you were raised. And all of us will have something along those lines. If it's not homosexuality, if it's not racism, it's something else. And sin, sinful desires that the Bible condemns as sin whether we chose them or not, we are to repent of them. I will say that the study committee report, uh, which came in last General Assembly, is very good on that issue, very crystal clear on it. Here's another, here's another big issue. Can same-sex attraction be changed? And the fundamental argument being made, this is a matter of major contention between us, the fundamental argument being made is the answer is, practically speaking, no. Uh, Greg Johnson came out with a book this year, the subtitle of which says, Going From Cure to Care. It says the church has got to stop curing people of homosexuality, and we've got to just start accepting and caring them and loving them, and accepting them as they are. And loving, well, at one level, we've been doing that all along. When I was a Christian, and when I was first converted in the 1990s at 10th Presbyterian Church, you may remember the AIDS crisis was going on, 10th Pres has a mercy ministry uh, towards homosexuals who were dying of AIDS. And it was an evangelistic ministry, but it was also simply a mercy ministry because of the extent of their sufferings. We have, we, we have long been engaging in care of people as people. We should, let me agree wholeheartedly, we should be lovingly caring for sinners of all kinds because they bear the image of God and because the compassion of Christ ought to move us. But is there a dichotomy between cure and care? And at the very least, the insinuation is being made that we should not have an expectation of this particular sin orientation and desire being changed. Um, and the argument being made for it is almost entirely anecdotal. Uh, I've done research, not me, this is Greg Johnson, I've done research on all of these and I know of no examples of anyone being changed. He's recently said of himself, I have had not one iota of change in my sexual orientation. Uh, well, I am among those who consider this an assault on the gospel. Because the, the, the gospel tells us that we are, the gospel is not only forgiveness of sins, it's also the transformation of life. And there are so many biblical passages, I think of 2 Corinthians 3.18, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we in Christ are being transformed from one degree of, we are presently being transformed from one degree of glory by the Spirit who is the Lord. And so the Bible constantly speaks of the transformative duty of Christians. I think of uh, Titus 2.11, the grace of God teaches us to, to say no to ungodliness and to lead self-controlled godly lives in this evil age. And so the, the biblical gospel is union with Christ, 
with a forensic blessing, forgiveness and justification. There's a legal dimension to our salvation. I, I though guilty, am forgiven. By his blood, he paid my debt. And I, though condemned in myself, am justified in Christ by his imputed righteousness. But the other dimension is a transformative dimension. What does Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery? You're forgiven, go now and sin no more. That's, the, that's John Calvin calls the duplex gratia. And we are now in an environment in the PCA. I'm going to argue we have a broad environment in the PCA that in many respects downplays the obligation and, and our positive expectation that I am a new creature in Christ and I am no longer to live the way that I did. And not only, I often put it this way, not only must I no longer live the way that I did, I no longer need to live the way that I did. Why? Because I'm a, I'm a new creature. I'm born again. And I have the Holy Spirit working in me. And I have the exalted Lord Jesus Christ interceding at the right hand of the Father. And now suddenly we're to believe that there are certain sin categories over which that expectation is not true. This is why I have argued before that these issues with regard to revoice and the gay identity and our ministry towards gay people are, are fundamentally shaping what is the gospel we believe. And even our view of, of God, one of the sayings that I personally objected to at the 2019 General Assembly was you can't pray the gay away. I took offense at that because it seems to indicate that there are limits to what prayer can do. And I've been heavily criticized for this, including this week on Twitter. Um, and I'm open to criticism. Uh, my argument is if, if there is something that our praying is not able to achieve, the problem is not us, it's God. The question is what is the limits on God? And I, I don't want to overstate what I thought they were saying, but let me just say an environment when our pastoral approach to a problem is to tar, start talking about what prayer cannot do, what we should not expect God ordinarily to do, uh, is, a, is not the gospel approach that we find in the New Testament. We're to have an expectation that through union with Christ, by the mighty working of the Holy Spirit, by the ordinary means of grace, and let's not forget the intercession of the sovereign Christ for us at the right hand of God, in every sin category conceivable, we should never downplay the likelihood, the possibility, the expectation of dramatic change in the direction of holiness in the direction of turning from sin, turning from the non-biblical pattern towards the biblical pattern, regardless of what the category is, we are paying a heavy price in our fundamental understanding of the gospel. And of course, there are people, I think of Harvest USA, which will provide evidence of people having substantial change. Now, by the way, we do not deny that we are never perfect in this life. You think of Paul in Philippians, when Paul says, I am not yet perfect, but I press on to lay hold of him who laid hold of me, that kind of settles the story. We do not believe in this sin category or any other sin category that we are going to arrive at a place where we are without sin. Uh, no one's arguing that. But the Christian faith believes in the power of Christ 
through his death on the cross, through the open tomb, by his intercession and ascending forth of the Spirit, that our orientation is to zealously pursue repentance, mortification, new life. And I believe it is not loving to tell someone who is struggling that that is not so. Now, I do not deny that um, this would be a very difficult thing to deal with. I do not deny that there would be a lot of uh, shame attached to it, much of which is, is meant to be harmful from others. I have a great sympathy toward and a patience, and we should have a long suffering. But I do not believe we can find ourselves faithful to the gospel by accepting that kind of, of position. I see my, my time is running away. I'm a preacher. Uh, you know, one of the slogans these days is, uh, we want holiness, not heterosexuality. Well, again, there's another false dichotomy. This debate is filled with false dichotomies. Uh, we are, I, we've never said to someone, we want, your goal in life is heterosexuality. Your goal in life is holiness. But holiness includes heterosexuality by definition. God's creation of man, God made man in his image, male and female, created he them. God's creative design is heterosexual. Sanctification involves the repentance of and the transformation from the deviations from his design towards conformity with his design. So we have these false agendas. Well, let's fast forward to last year's General Assembly because I'm running out of time. Um, last year's General Assembly saw, in my belief, a large conservative turnout because of great concerns about these trends. And the, uh, the PCA passed, actually I have it on my phone. This will be my first time using my phone as a recording device in the church. Look how hip and trendy I am. <laughs> Overture 23 was passed by a large majority last year and it says this. If adopted, it would, it would add the following language to the book of church order. Officers in the Presbyterian Church in America must be above reproach in their walk and Christ-like in their character those who profess an identity such as, but not limited to, gay Christian, same-sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or like terms, that, un but now listen to the qualifiers, that undermines or contradicts their identity as new creatures in Christ. So that overture did not say anybody who struggles with same-sex attraction is barred from office. It says if struggling with same-sex attraction, they identify in a way that contradicts or undermines their identity as new creatures in Christ, either by denying the sinfulness of fallen desires, we talked about that, such as but not limited to same-sex attraction, or by denying the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, we just talked about that, or by failing to pursue spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions are not qualified for ordained office. Now that overture says, a, person, a man who is same-sex attracted and then who positively identifies it in such a way as he either denies the sinfulness of it or he denies the possibility of, of sanctification from it or who is not actively pursuing those things, that person is not qualified for office. Well, immediately, Twitter lit up. And Twitter said, the PCA just said, no gays welcome at our church. Is that what that said? And the rhetoric... The, 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 really, the, the venom, the, the, the false characterizations, and you have to think they're, I know emotions run hot. Let me read you some of the tweets that came out of this. Uh, 
PCA, PCA Overture 23 is unloving, unmerciful, unjudgmental. Let's call it what it is, a witch hunt. Another one, such wickedness will be held to account one day so that we can um, turn the cheek now if we can. Uh, that's not, we did not just exclude homosexual people from our church. We said that you're to embrace in this sin category what we embrace in every other sin category, and we're seeking to give clarity. Now, the sad news is, from my perspective, that what would have been a very helpful, clarifying statement, reaffirming our commitment to the biblical truth, has just this week, it has failed in the presbyteries. A book of church order change has to have two-thirds of the presbyteries, and I believe there was, and I don't resent them doing this, by the way, there was a massive campaign uh, on the part of the progressives to defeat this. I don't think it's illegitimate for them to seek to persuade. We also, I, I also was trying to seek to persuade on the other side. Uh, where does that leave the PCA? Well, we don't know. Uh, meanwhile, uh, a man named Ryan Speck in Missouri Presbytery filed two charges against Missouri Presbytery. Speck one was for failing to discipline Memorial PCA over the Revoice Conference. Spec two was failing to uh, discipline uh, teaching elder Greg Johnson for his doctrines and the statements he made. Uh, spec one was, uh, was, was handled by the, S uh, the SJC as our high court, the Standing Judicial Commission is the General Assembly's final court of appeal. And uh, on the spec two case, which was against Greg Johnson's teaching, which I've been trying to summarize, that came with, with a finding of no action. Uh, they, they didn't actually exonerate his doctrine, as he has been saying, but it did decline to take discipline against him. Now, it only takes eight votes. There's 25 votes, I think. Is that right? 25 on the SJC? It only takes a minority, eight votes, so that's a third, uh, for there to be a minority report that goes before the General Assembly. That threshold was not met. So spec to the PCA has said those things that Greg Johnson has been teaching are not to be disciplined. I find that disconcerting in a denomination that purports to uphold the Bible. Spec one is currently under adjudication. I'm not on the SJC, not able to report on that, but I will be very surprised if the SJC convicts Missouri Presbytery for not disciplining Memorial PCA over the original uh, uh, conference, uh, voice conference. Now, I want to conclude with this. What's going on? Well, one thing going on is the factual, factional politicization of the PCA. There's a group known as the National Partnership. By the way, I'm part of a group known as the Gospel Reformation Network. We are, and that we, what we call ourselves is what we mean. We want, to ref, we want a biblical reformation of, of, the, of how we proclaim the gospel and how we, we acted out the PCA. And we're a proclamatory ministry. We have a website. You want to know who the members are? Go to our website. Our pictures are there. We hold public events. We are, we are advocating what we believe is the reformed doctrine of salvation and of healthy polity. On the other side is a group called the National Partnership, which is a secret organization that does not publish who the members are. And recently, after many years of operating with the National Partnership, the emails that they've been secretly passing along were publicly exposed. And I do want, I think the best way to do, I brought an article that deals with this. I'm just gonna read a couple of paragraphs. I think it's accurate. 
that the National Partnership is seeking to staff committees, such as the permanent committees, every denominational agency has a permanent committee that it answers to, so, the, so that the uh, uh, accountability for Mission to the World, for Covenant Seminary, for RUF, is in, a, is in the group of permanent committees. And this article, I think, accurately states that they have been, I would think, I think the word is they've been conspiring secretly to staff committees, uh, such as the permanent committees, and the special committees, the nominating committee, the review of Presbytery Records Committee, the Standing Judicial Commission, and that they are doing so through secret confidential communications and coordination. The National Partnership has maintained various platforms for its conversations, uh, email groups, a now-defunct website, Facebook messengers, the common thread that runs through each of these is the promise of keeping things secret. And they have claimed in those emails that they have their members on the nominating committee, their members on the permanent committees, their members on the standing judicial commission. Now, among the people who at least at some time were members of the National Partnership were Brian Chappell, who's the stated clerk of the PCA and who is a member of the, National, of the Standard Judicial Commission. Uh, well, I think this undermines our confidence in the fidelity and objectivity of these things. They have made much, this article, which is by, by the way, I'm quoting from, um, his name is Jared Nelson. He wrote an article called Secret Caucuses and the PCA. They have made much about their success of getting men onto the, the Standing Judicial Commission and the permanent committees. Well, what, well let me, how do I want to wrap this up? Uh, my opinion, it's my opinion, is that our denomination will not serve Christ faithfully in our generation by redefining biblical categories under the cultural pressure. I think the thing for us to do is to uphold the Bible's teaching, biblical categories, biblical doctrines, biblical practices. And what we're dealing with, we're dealing at a time, I see my, call, my watch, we're dealing with a time when the world is demanding that we conform to its sexual ethos, to its, its, un, its, its pagan understanding of personal identity, sexuality, of marriage, and, and those sorts of things. And the question coming soon is the PCA a side B denomination? There will be some faithful brethren who will conclude now, now the spec one case has not yet been come out, but the failure of Overture 23 is a major blow to those who believe we are to uphold the word of God in the face of a culture that is hostile to biblical Christianity. And I dare say the upcoming General Assemblies, the upcoming votes at presbyteries, please be praying for the Standing Judicial Commission. Please be praying that there not be a politicization of it. We should not have secret groups working behind the scenes to get some people in and other people out. And they, in their own writings, have claimed that that's what they've done. Many of the people in our denominational agencies are, have been associated at least on the threads. Now, let me say for Brian Chappell, he has come out since then and believe, I think he said he has not for some time had any involvement with them, and I'm, I'm glad if that's true. It's alarming to me if he ever had involvement in them or anybody else in our agencies or, or on our, in our permanent committees. Um, the PCA is in grave danger of suffering a great division 
I, my guess is already many conservative churches will start leaving. They will start leaving. I want to appeal to them not to do so. I think we have to see this through a bit. I think we have to see what happens at General Assembly. We have, and, 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 and by the way, you're going, oh, Rick, all you want to do is litigate things. Actually, I don't want to litigate them. We're not the ones who thrust revoice onto the PCA. But I believe our duty as Christians and as churches is to seek to maintain our church on a biblical course and witness and upholding biblical norms and practices. And I think we need to see that through, but I want to inform you, I think the state of the PCA is precarious. And I would urge you to send all your delegates to Presbytery and General Assembly and be prayerfully engaged. Uh, I, I represent the Gospel Reformation Network. We have a website. It's a good source of information. I'm gonna stop right there and, and, and pray. Father in heaven, it's so hard just to talk in this way without feeling that you're, you're, you're not saying something the right way or you're disparaging someone. Lord, I know I've not meant personal disparagement of anyone, but I pray that Lord, those who hear me would avoid taking needless offense. But Lord, I also pray that we as a denomination would take active steps to maintain our fidelity. I think of the words of the Lord Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3. Clearly, he expects his church to be faithful to the truth and holy in its, in, its, uh, in its behavior. And so we pray that you would help us to find a, a renewed unity in the truth and in godliness in the PCA. And I do pray for your grace in the lives of those who disagree with me and who may uh, indeed be hostile towards me. Lord, uh, I pray that your blessing would be upon them through the grace that's in Jesus. I pray in his name, amen.